I was uh, sitting there and thinking to myself, you know, I, I, I've started this thing where I like to do the um, interactive sermons, where I ask three questions, and I ask um, for three responses, which means three people giving a response, however brief, to, to give a response. And of course, there was at one time four of us here, and I thought, the Lord has met my need and request, and then he's given me an abundance. <laughs> So, the Lord does hear us, and he answers. And he's given me more abundance. <laughs> so thank God for your presence here, because you're a big encourager. And you please the Lord. Cause him to smile. Most important. God bless you. So tonight, we're going we're to look at the topic of instrumental music. And it, like I said, it's an interactive sermon. So I'm going to ask you three questions that are going to form this sermon. And I'd like to hear three responses before I move on. Now, there's no trick questions. There's no zingers or anything, you know, the riddles to catch it. I, I'm prone to fall into that from time to time, but tonight I won't do that. So I'm going to ask you three questions about instrumental music. And the first one is, is music a part of our worship? So I start you off with a nice, easy question. Is music a part of our worship? So, if anyone here, just to break the ice, wants to say yes, who wants to be the first person to say yes? Thank you, my dear. Okay, wonderful. Singing. Singing. I like that. I, see, I write down these good responses. I have two yeses. Everyone yes? Two yes? Do I hear a third yes? Everyone? Okay, we have a third yes. Going once, going twice, sold. Okay, so that was a nice, easy. Is music a part of our worship and we have the idea here of singing is part of the music in our worship well that leads us right into our second question and that is what kind of music is part of our worship what kind of music is part of our worship we know that there's music now we know that that's a part of that you know I know it, it's emotional you know because singing singing and music they affect your emotions, your feelings. You can be downbeat and hear a song. Yes, Brother Doc. Uh, hopefully pleasing to God. Okay, that's, and what that's talking about is attitude. And that's wonderful. Pleasing to God. Because really, well, you're going to make me get off track, but I'm going to say this before I, I tend to Scott. I've got a loud voice, I admit it, okay? Every once in a while I'm loud. I'm also prone to sinus infections. And there's been times when I've sat in service and my voice sounded like Minnie Mouse. So I really didn't sing at all, or only Gail could hear me next to her. But in my heart, I was singing really loud. And then there was other times when, for whatever reasons, the weather was beautiful and my sinus was were great and my voice was just, oh man, this is really good. And I thought, wow, you're thinking about your voice, and your voice doesn't really matter, because the only thing that matters out of this is that it pleases God. So you just, you just said it all right there, brother. It's pleasing to God. Thank you. 
to the glory of God. And you threw in a Bach reference, so of course I have to write that down. So yes, to the glory of God. So that's an attitude. That's wonderful. Any other thoughts to this? What kind of music is part of our worship? We're talking about attitudes and intentions. What kind of music? Any? Any thoughts? Before I venture some verses? Okay, while you're thinking, and I still have room for a third response, so please feel free. Let's turn together in our Bibles to um, 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We're going to start in chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 17 here. The context here is that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, which is a mess. The church has many problems, deep problems, and they have an issue with the Lord's Supper. He says in 1st Corinthians 11, verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Now, without getting into the issues that Paul is addressing specifically, the point I want to pull out from this set of verses here is that when they met together, they were coming together as a church. So their meetings were coming together as a church. Now flip over with me to chapter 14, a few chapters to the right. And we're going to look at verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14. In verse 26, Paul again writes, What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, and we've seen that is as a church, everyone has a hymn, or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All these must be done for the strengthening of the church. So the scriptural uh, answer is, is music a part of our worship? Well, everyone has a hymn. Everyone has a hymn. What kind of music is part of our worship? Well, let's turn to the book of Colossians. We're in 1 Corinthians. Let's look at Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3. And Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, we're going to see what kind of music is part of our worship. Paul writes in verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What kind of music is part of our worship? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay? So, you know, when you're going down your serious uh, satellite radio list, you, know, you have reggae, country, jazz, soft rock, all that, you know, these are the kinds of, this kind of, kinds of music, these are the kind of songs we sing in church. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's what we are to do. Now let's see how we are to do it. Let's turn over to Ephesians 15. Let's turn back a few books to the left. To Ephesians 
chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 19 in Ephesians 5 and 19, where we read, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Those are those three categories again, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here repeats what he said previously in Colossians. He gives the same instructions. He says, starting the verse, speak to one another. So what, are we what is the music in our worship? It is psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and it is sung and spoken. So that's what we are to do, and this is how we are to do it. We are to sing and to speak. Now, here's the third part of our lesson. And this is the third question is the trickiest. What kind of music is not a part of our worship? I really want to hear from you now. What kind of music is not a part of our worship? We've seen what we are to do. Does that mean that there's any music that is not a part of our worship? Instrumental. Okay. Now I'm going to write that down, and I'm going to ask why. Okay. That's two good responses. A third response. Anyone? Yes, Scott. Okay, so any music that does not fulfill glory for God. Okay. Not giving God glory. I'll break my rule for this one because this is such an interesting question here. Any other thoughts? I don't want to stifle any thoughts with this one. I'm going to answer it. But, uh, yes, Mitch. Okay, that's excellent. Yes. Okay, I actually, I have a confession to make. I didn't write that down, although it would be in my list on a longer sermon to give that verse. But I am going to refer you, since you, you gave such a great response there, Mitch, to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And I'm going to return, uh, refer you to the last chapter of the last book, chapter 22, where John writes in verse 18 of chapter 22, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That is a severe warning. That's about as severe as, as it gets, except for the next warning. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So that is saying exactly what Mitch had referred to. 
We are not to add to or subtract from the words of God. Because after all, when you think about it, isn't that the definition of perfect? If you take, it, take from it or you add to it, if you change it in any way, it's no longer perfect. That's the definition of perfect. Don't change it. Don't fix it if it ain't broke, is it old side. Okay. Great comments, great questions. Now I want to give you my answer. Let's look at the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament. And we're going to see what kind of music is not part of our worship. Now I'm not specifically, and we're going to look at chapter 21. I'm not specifically looking at music. What I want to do is what we just did there, is look at the big picture. To zoom out, if you will, to use a computer phrase to zoom out and look at a bigger picture and to understand authority because that's what this is talking about is authority and an example concerning authority is this in Matthew chapter 21 we're going to read in verse 23 Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him by what authority are you doing these things they asked and who gave you this authority Jesus replied I will also ask you one question if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people. For they all hold that John was a prophet. Now, why were they afraid of the people? Their Q rating was going to go down. They were going to call them names, say something bad about them. Uh, they were afraid that they were going to stone them. That is, that they were going to pick up stones and throw them at them until they died. Okay, that's what they were afraid of from the people. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. They lied, didn't they? <laughs> they lied. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, there's a whole lot here. That's, that's a sermon right there. The point I want to point out here, what I want to draw, is that concerning authority, there's authority from heaven and authority from men. Our authority as Christians comes from heaven. That is, it comes from God. And we're to understand that first and foremost, as I've heard tonight, which is good and wonderful. That's the big picture that we need to understand first before we zoom in and look at specifics. So now, let's look at Hebrews chapter 6. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, and James. And in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer here is making a comparison. We're going to start reading in verse 19. He's making a comparison between Melchizedek and Jesus. Melchizedek is not really a popular, well-known figure in the Bible, and yet he's a very important figure because he is a priest. And he is a priest not according to the law of Moses, but he is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as priest. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, where the writer writes, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. That's a hymn, by the way. I'll say that as a side note. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, had entered on our behalf. He, that is Melchizedek, has become a high priest forever, that is, excuse me, Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Melchizedek is a very unique character in the Bible. He is not, his genealogy is not listed, his children are not listed. Without beginning of days or end of life. He remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests, because that's what the, the priesthood was based on under the law of Moses, to collect a tenth from the people, that is the tithe, that is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from, the Ab from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Go down to verse 13. I mean, excuse me, 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, that is the law of Moses, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. Jesus from the tribe of Judah. The priests under the law of Moses were from the tribe of Levi. Here's the point of this comparison and what I want to draw out from here. In regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So we looked at authority, whether it's from heaven or from men, and here we see that when God is silent, the scriptures are silent, we should be silent because we do not have the authority from heaven to speak as the oracles of God, if you will. That's that's a very important point, that in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Any thoughts before I move on to, I want to get specific with this. Any, any thoughts? Okay. Let me get specific, because now people will say, some will say, it doesn't say you can't or you shouldn't. It doesn't say thou shall not, as we like to say from the King James, us older folks. I want to give you an example. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. And this is a very important principle to bear in mind. Numbers chapter 20, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you're in Deuteronomy, turn back to Numbers. The context here, we're going to start our reading in verse 7. The context here is that Moses is leading the Israelites through the wilderness and they're doing what they have so often done is complain and grumble against Moses and ultimately against God. There is a lack of water being a whole lot of folks and then they're in the desert. So they're complaining. It says in verse six, in Numbers 20, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron Gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before your, their eyes, and it will pour out its water. 
You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff in the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses and said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. They've got water, hooray, all's good, right? Except it's not good. It's not right. Verse 12, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Wow. If you think of Moses and his life, his whole life was dedicated to bringing the Israelites to the promised land wandered through the desert for 40 years and God said because you just did this you will not fulfill your dream you will not do this I will deny it of you think of how your reaction would be after you've done all that Moses has done of this this situation then he says go on in verse 24 Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites because both of you, that is Moses too, rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. He goes on to say, flip over with me to one book to Deuteronomy. One book to the right, to the last chapter, chapter 34. Verse 1, he says, Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes but you will not cross over into it. So he still remembered it. He still held his punishment. Parents, can you identify with that when you punish your children and you got to hold them to that? He still held the punishment. Who is Moses? Look at verse 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. If there is anybody that God is going to favor among the land of the living, among mortals, it's Moses. If there's anybody that he's going to let slide, it's Moses. But he holds him to this punishment. He does not let him enter the promised land. Why? Because God told him to speak to the rock, and Moses struck the rock. He didn't tell him, don't do anything else but speak to the rock. He didn't tell him, don't strike the rock. He told him, speak to the rock. Moses didn't speak to the rock. And God did not even allow Moses to go unpunished. That's how severe that warning is for us to follow God's instructions. He tests us to see if we have it in our hearts to follow his commands. 
to follow his directions, his instructions. So we take this general principle and we apply it to our music. When God says to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that's what we do. Because we want to enter the promised land. And we're going to enter the promised land singing, hands in hands. And we're going to be singing to the glory of God who rescued us and brought us home safe and sound. I hope that answers your questions tonight about the, the topic of our music and worship. To anyone who's not a Christian, I would have these words to say, that in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41, Peter says to those assembled, be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And they were cut pricked to the heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter answered them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you will receive the, the gift for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those who accepted his message were baptized and added to God's church. And we hope that anyone who's not a Christian who is in earshot that hears anyone, that today would be the day that they hear and obey God's wonderful and perfect law. We invite you to come forward now while we stand and sing. <laughs>